of God cursing. So does God, does God um, curse? It's a good question. And I had assumed that uh, people would be uh, kind of familiar with this, and I glossed over it last time. I'm going to give you a couple of pointers. I'm not going to get into it in details, but enough for you to understand that, yes, indeed, God does curse, just as God does bless. And it isn't something that you can just relegate to the Old Testament. Beware of any, beware of making that mistake of saying, well, that's in the Old Testament and that's not in the Old Testament. God does not change. There's no such thing as a God of an Old Testament and a God of a New Testament. In fact, if we have a little bit of time, I could show you that the Old Testament God, Yahweh, who speaks to his people, is not God the Father, it is God the Son. That the God the Son has been always active throughout salvation history. And that comes from the fact that Jesus tells us that my, my Father has given everything to me. Right? But a couple of pointers. Uh, if you were to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, um, you would see that when God um, speaks, for instance, verse uh, um, 14 and following, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, this is chapter 3, uh, verse 14 and following, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Who's doing the cursing? Don't be fooled by the passive form. Cursed are you. This is not a sort of a general statement that God is making. This is a direct curse. Furthermore, he says... To the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. Now if any man can dare tell a woman that pains of childbearing and giving birth are uh, something that she should uh, look upon very lightly, uh, he would be in trouble very quickly. Alright, this is a direct action on the part of God. Scripture is very clear. And to Adam he said, Because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you. And then he adds, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What greater curse is there than death? And who dispenses death? God does. We don't die on our own. Okay? Now, if we move to the book of um, Leviticus... Where is it? Just Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26. If you want to read something about God's activity, read Leviticus 26. Okay? Leviticus 26. 
Alright, verse 3 of Leviticus 26, this is addressed to the priests. Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase. What is that? That's a blessing. Who's blessing? God. Right? God will give the rain. If we follow His commandment, what is that? I will give you. Right? And your threshing shall last to the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. Who's doing all this? God. Right? We all agree. So if we have this sort of lopsided view of God, for blessings, oh we agree, God bless us. But God's the curses, oh no, they cannot be. Well, we have to be honest with God. He does both. He's the Lord of history. And so on and so forth. But then he says, Alright, I'll give you peace in the land, I will make, have regard for you, and make you fruitful, their blessings. Verse 14, so for 3 to, to, to 13 blessings, starting with, with, with verse 14 to verse 46. 14 to 46 are curses. Here we go. But if you will not hearken to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my, but break my covenant. Okay? Break my covenant. So it is covenant-centered. A covenant has blessings and has curses. You live by the covenant, you're blessed. You do not live by the covenant, you're cursed. What are blessings and curses? There are medicinal tools that God will use to bring us to Him. Or, in the worst case, in the extreme case, there are heavenly blessings in which He brings you up to heaven. That's the greatest blessing possible. Or, definitive curse in which you are condemned to hell. Alright? If you break my covenant, says the Lord... I will, do, I will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, and fever. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be smitten by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And you shall flee when none pursues you. And if, in spite of this, you will not hearken to me, you notice, he's doing this for what purpose? So that we can hearken to him. Alright? It's medicinal. It is intended, the curses are intended to meet what? Our hardened heart. Why? Because He loves us. God loves us. He will not, He will do everything to try to save us from hell. Everything. And if you do not this, I will chastise you again sevenfold for your sins. Why seven? What's in seven? It is the number of the covenant. What is to make covenant in Hebrew? To seven oneself. That's why God created the world in seven days. Not for any other reason, because on the seventh day, He sealed the covenant. That's why it's sevenfold. It is all covenant based. 
Alright? I will chastise you again and I will break the pride of your power and will make your heavens like iron and your earth like brass. Iron and brass are always, always, always connected to covenantal judgment. Always. Okay? For instance, Elijah made the, the heaven like iron. And he was like brass because he commanded for it not to rain for three years and it did not rain. If you walk contrary to me and will not hearken to me, I will bring plagues upon you. And then it, it, it's, it's increasing in crescendo. Then he will bring the sword, vengeance, pestilence. By the way, sword, pestilence, death, three of the horses in the apocalypse. Do you see where it's coming from? See what the apocalypse is all about? It's covenantal judgment. The immediate goal of the book of the apocalypse is covenantal judgment on Jerusalem. Its intent is to show the Christians that Jerusalem will be destroyed as a sign of covenantal judgment. That's its immediate meaning. It has an eschatological meaning as well. But that's its immediate meaning. Now, I will break your staff and then... If you still don't do that, I will walk contrary to you in fury and chastise you myself sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Don't reduce God to a little pink mercy box. I mean, what I'm trying to tell you is that in order for us to understand the depth of the mercy of God, we have first to reckon with His justice. Then we will be all the more grateful for His mercy. And by the way, these were not exaggerated words. Because in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. Josephus in his book, The, War, the Wars of the Jews, Record what happened when he entered Jerusalem with the Romans after the long siege. Where women were giving soldiers carcasses of babies that were cooked. That came to pass. Okay? Does God curse? Yes, he does. Now, some may say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, alright, turn to Timothy. First letter to Timothy. This is just one example in the New Testament. There may be more, but I don't want to spend too much time on this. So, just turn to the letter of Timothy. 1 Timothy. Verse 18. This charge I commit to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophetic utterances which pointed to you, that inspired by them you may wage the good warfare, warfare holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. What is St. Paul saying? He's saying if you don't live a moral, upright life, your faith will go down the tube. Timothy, chapter, the first letter of Timothy, 1.18. And he adds, among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and now pay attention, whom I have delivered to Satan. 
St. Paul is talking, as a bishop, whom I have delivered to Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. That they may learn not to blaspheme. He delivered them to Satan. You understand? The same mechanism, blessings and curses, exist in the New Covenant today as they existed back then. What is our problem? We simply don't know how to read history in the light of the covenant. We forgot. We have completely dissociated historical events, political events, from their theological, covenantal meaning. Does God give blessings and curses? Yes, He does. Absolutely. The purpose is to get us to grow in love and in faith. Now, one last word. Do not confuse, do not make the mistake of mapping blessings to health and wealth and curses to poverty. The, the, the person who is cursed in the highest degree today would be someone who has perfect health, who has wealth, who's doing very, very well in the world, everything is going well for him, and he's living in sin. That is the most terrifying situation to be in. That is the greatest curse that God can impose upon anyone. Why? Because that's a ticket to hell. You understand that? If you're living in a state of sin, of mortal sin, and everything physical is going well for you, you harden your heart. There's no reason for you to change. You understand? Whereas those who may be living in poverty know that they depend on God. And therefore, they are spiritually very rich. They're blessed. And now we take that, we extend that to one of the greatest blessings that we have, which we have successfully transformed into a curse. Children. Recognize to what extent we have been paganized. Recognize to what extent we live by the world's principles and ethic. When we take children and we look at them as a curse. Simply because they're a burden. You understand? One last point about suffering. There are two kinds of suffering. Suffering is always connected with a um, with sin. That's no, never going to go away. Right? Suffering is always connected with sin. The only question is, am I suffering because of my own sins? Or am I suffering in order to atone for the sins of others? That's it. Jesus suffered to atone for our sins. Mary suffered to atone for our sins. Many of the saints suffer to atone for our sins. What are we doing? That's the key question.
and neither I nor you can judge anybody. I can't tell who's suffering for what. I mean, there's certain extreme cases where it is very clear. There are many cases where it isn't. And it's not up to me to judge. God didn't put me here to judge anyone. But God expects me to know the covenant that I had entered into by being a member of His church. Which brings us back to studying the Gospel of St. Luke. Any questions on blessings and curses? Because I don't want to open the subject again. It, it, you know, it's, it's a study on its own. Any questions? Yes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Typically what will happen is that initially you'll suffer for your own, to, 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 as a retribution of your own sins and as a stage of purification. Because initially, as we grow in a spiritual life, we're not thinking about anybody else. We're thinking about ourselves. I mean, the first thing that God can succeed in planning in our heart is fear of hell. Right? Where we are really afraid to end up in hell, and therefore we make an effort to go to confession and then to fast and all these things, which is the former, the lower kind of love. Right? And then we move on to loving God for God, not because of what I can get from God. But there are stages, right? And as those stages grow, our ability to carry on with Jesus' cross for others grow. So, having said that, God can sometimes, you know, in any particular case, there may be a mix of both, and only the Holy Spirit sometimes, and a really good spiritual director can figure it out. All right. Now I have 20 copies of these things, and uh, hopefully this is going to be enough. If not, please make some more copies and uh, distribute those. Yes, that's. Exactly. No. The question is in the Gospel of St. Luke, when Pilate has condemned a number of Galileans to death, or when the Tower of Siloe had collapsed and fell on a number of Jews, the question was was this happened because of sin? And the answer of our Lord is, don't think that those folks for whom this happened are, you know, live in a deeper sin than those for whom it doesn't happen. Which brings me back to my initial point. If you're living in health and wealth, it does not mean that you're a saint. Oftentimes it could mean the exact opposite. Because health and wealth has a toll on our faith. Okay? So, um, we cannot infer from our suffering alone the reason why the suffering has been imposed on us. But I'll give you scenarios that where, where things are clear. You take someone who is living in homosexuality, which is a moral sin, and this person is inflicted with AIDS. That affliction can be one of the greatest acts of mercy of God towards that person. 
Because through it, this person may come back and realize what he's doing and come back to God and, and die reconciled. You understand? And in the, same, in the same token, you take someone who is living in a completely immoral life, and everything is going very well for him, and he's charming and happy and, you know, does good and helps the poor and all that, but he's living in mortal sin. That's one of the worst form of curse that anyone can be under. That's, what, that's Jesus' point. Don't stop and look at the outward manifestation of someone's life to judge whether they're saints or sinners. You get it all wrong. And it's tied to the Old Covenant and Mosaic Law. We're going to get to that. Alright, before I hit chapter 2 of Zechariah, I need to walk you through this. And we're going to repeat it over and over and over until it becomes familiar. It needs to become very familiar so that you can really understand the Gospel. What you see here is a very brief chronology, but it's an important one. I need to walk you through this and take notes as we start. 1850, Abraham and his family arrive in Canaan, and then 1250, Exodus out of Egypt. The captivity lasted 500 years. 1220, Joshua leads Israel into the Promised Land. Alright, first important point, Moses managed to get the people out of Egypt, but Moses could not get them into the Promised Land. It was Joshua who brought them into the Promised Land. What is another form of Joshua? Jesus. Same name. Alright? Same name. So in terms of typology, you can see what's going on here in the Gospel of Luke. Where Luke is going to be talking about an exodus. Jesus' exodus out of Jerusalem to the Promised Land. So just as the old, the former Joshua brought them into the physical promised land, Jesus will fulfill the type by bringing us into the real and eternal promised land, heaven. Okay? 1040, Samuel, the last judge, is born. And among the judges, there is one that you know, very famous, and his name is Samson. He was a judge of Israel. You probably all know the story of Samson. Anyone doesn't know the story of Samson? You know, Samson was very strong, and eventually uh, he disclosed that his strength was in his hair, and he got his hair cut, and then he brought the temple of the unbelievers upon themselves, and, and, and he died in the process. Why am I mentioning this? Because most of the time we don't understand why is it that his strength was in his hair. And what, what, what is that? Some sort of act of magic? You know, he had some sort of a, you know, kryptonite hair or some special form of hair. Had some, you know, DNA that is different. I mean, doesn't that sound silly? His strength was in his hair. I really oftentimes wonder if the concern that men today have with their hair has anything to do with Samson. You know? An ongoing concern for men is loss of hair. And I'm wondering if it had anything to do with Samson. Be it as it may, the reason why his strength was in his hair was because he was a Nazarite. 
Makes sense, doesn't it? No. No. Okay. Thank you. A Nazarite is someone who is consecrated unto the Lord for priestly ministry. We're going to see that with John the Baptist. And in Number chapter 3, we're told, chapter 6 of Number, I'm sorry, tell us that a couple of things the Nazarite has to do, one of which is his hair will not be cut. So the outward manifestation of a Nazarite following, being obedient to the covenant, comes from not drinking strong drinks, abstaining from impurities, having a long hair. So really what Samson said when he revealed that and she cut his hair, essentially he broke the covenant. You understand? And hence, the, spir the spiritual grace that God gave him in strength left him. Which is a sign, it's an outward sign what happens to us when we sin. The life of grace dies in us. In us. You understand? So, Samuel was the last of the judges. We'll come back to Samuel. We'll revisit. 1000 BC, David becomes king of Israel. An important date. Why? In the book of Revelation, John speaks of what? A word that starts with the letter M. Of which many of our Protestant brothers and sisters make a big deal. Millennium. The famous millennium. Is there going to be a millennium before the end of the world, after the end of the world, before Jesus comes? Are you pre-mill, post-mill? What are you? Well, really the millennium that John is referring to is the time, the span of time between the reign of David and the coming of Jesus. 1,000 years. Okay. Most of the book of Revelation, will hit upon it, hopefully, when we do the study, has to do with things that have already taken place. In fact, there are a number of scholars that argue that there is nothing in the book of Revelation that talks about the future. Absolutely nothing. And they have a compelling argument. Flawed, but compelling. Okay? 931 BC, Solomon dies, and the kingdom of Israel splits into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And that's a little bit confusing. All right. Um, if you look at your second map, you see Palestine, the ancient Palestine, and you see Jerusalem sort of in the middle. And right around Jerusalem, I'm going to give you another map next week that will show you Judah. And remember what I said last week. Hebrews are descendant of Eber, the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham. Jews are descendant of Judah, the third son of Jacob. And Israel, Israelites are descendant of Israel, Jacob. Don't confuse those three terms. If you do, you will miss most of what the gospel is trying to tell us. Okay? 
So, after the death of Solomon, the, king, the kingdom of David, which was the kingdom of Jacob, the kingdom of Israel, is now split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Judah, down south, and the kingdom of Israel, up north. Okay? Keep that in mind. 721 BC, the house of Israel, the new kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes up north, are taken into captivity by Assyrian invaders. They disappear into the lands across the north, vanishing from world view. This is very important. This is a very important historical, political event that has deep theological ramifications. When the tribe of the kingdom of the north disappear, vanish, are mixed with the rest of the people that were occupied by the Assyrians, we have a fundamental problem. Starting from Abraham, with Isaac, Jacob, then through the prophets, Isaiah, especially in his second book, Jeremiah, Amos, the book of Sirach, and on and on and on and on. Promise what? The return, the coming of the Messiah, who will restore what? What will he restore? No. The kingdom of Israel. This begs the question. How will he restore the kingdom of Israel when there are no traces left of the ten tribes? How will he do that? You understand the problem? How will the Messiah restore the kingdom of Israel when you can't tell the ten tribes from the nation, from the Gentiles. Do you understand the problem? If you don't, if you don't understand its importance, I want you to let me know now. There's so much that rides on this, that if you don't understand it, much will, will sound confusing. How can he restore the kingdom of Israel which God has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, through the prophets, that he will bring about the restoration of the house of Jacob, the kingdom of Israel, all twelve tribes, the way David had them. How will that Messiah do that when you can't tell the ten tribes that had split from Judah and Benjamin from the nations. You understand the problem? Pardon? How? How? That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of Luke. That's why Luke wrote that Gospel. To answer this particular question. Now, we need to understand that the problem is more complicated than what I just stated. More complicated than what I just stated. And let me show you why. 
No. They were never allowed to come back. In fact, what the Assyrians did is that they took those ten tribes. Right? So let me recap. The kingdom of David, under, after the death of Solomon, broke into two kingdoms. One in the south with Judah and the little tribe of Benjamin. And the little tribe of Benjamin would have wanted to go with the ten other tribes, but couldn't because its territory had Jerusalem. And Judah was not about to let Benjamin take Jerusalem. So Benjamin was then closely associated with Judah. The remaining ten tribes... And you understand where the 12 tribes are coming from, right? You all understand that? Where do those 12 tribes come from? The 12 sons of Jacob. Right? When they entered the promised land under Joshua, it was Joshua who apportioned to each of the tribe a portion of the land. And I will bring you a map showing you how those tribes, where, where those tribes were located, on the, on the land. Okay? So those ten tribes, when they were conquered by the Assyrians, those ten tribes broke away from Jerusalem, formed their own kingdom, and they called it the kingdom of Israel. They reverted to the kingdom of Israel. Why? Why did they go back to calling kingdom of Israel? Because they wanted to go back to whom? Jacob. David is in the lineage of whom? Judah. You understand? That's why the, the, the kingdoms down south was called Judah. You, you follow me so far? Yeah? So when they broke off, what did they do? Not only did they break off politically, they broke off spiritually they would not go down to Jerusalem to worship God even though God said that's the only place you will worship me that's the only place where you will offer sacrifice through the Levitical priesthood only the Levites will offer sacrifice what did they do? they broke off politically and spiritually what did they do? they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim where they started worshipping. And then they mixed their worship with worships of idols. So God sent them waves of prophets. Most of the prophets were not directed to the southern kingdom of Judah. They were mostly directed to the northern kingdom of Israel. With the exception of, with the exception of in particular, Elijah. Uh, I mean, Isaiah. Okay. But Elijah and Elisha and Amos... And um, uh, yeah, and the guy who was sent to Nineveh, Jonah. Most of these guys were all sent to the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel in waves. The first wave was saying, "Repent, come back, or else." The second wave came and said, "Get ready, it's coming." And the third wave that was addressed mainly to the kingdom of the south was about hope. There would be a restoration. Problem is when the Assyrians took over the kingdom of Israel, they took the ten tribes, deported them, and forced them to intermarry with five other conquered nations. Down the line, this will give you who? And who else? Galileans. 
You understand? Samaritans and Galileans. They're gone. Who now, if you follow that, that uh, chronology a little bit more, what do we see? We see that um, in um, 598 BC, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are taken to Babylon. Jeremiah takes the Ark of the Covenant to the Dead Sea and buries it in a cave. And it was never found until it was found by John the Apostle in heaven. When he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. 587, Nebuchadnezzar burns the Temple of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and 530, Daniel the prophet in the court of the kingdom, King of Babylon. We're going to go through those and, and, and string them together. We'll understand how Daniel relates to Isaiah, how Isaiah relates to Jeremiah, how they all relate to Moses. What do they have to say about these events? that came to pass. We'll come to understand those as we go through the study. And then they're allowed to come back under Cyrus. And the second Jerusalem temple is started in 537 BC and continued under Ezra and Nehemiah. And by the way, with Nehemiah and Ezra is the start of the role of the high priest as ruler of the people of Judea that would continue all the way down until Jesus' time. Okay. 323, Alexander the Great ends the Persian Empire, and 270, the Greek Bible, Septuagint, translated at Alexandria by 70 Hebrew scholars. Okay. And then 145 BC, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes appear. 63 BC, Pompey of Rome conquers Jerusalem. 37, Herod, an Idumean Arab, appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate. 20 B.C., Herod begins the construction of the third temple of Jerusalem. And between 6 and 4 B.C., birth of our Lord. And 70 A.D., the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. By the way, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, I'm sorry, Babylonians, Persians, Greek, and Roman. The four beasts in the Apocalypse of Daniel. You go back, you read Daniel's vision, you will see the four empires of which he's talking. Rome being the worst. And he says, after the fourth one, salvation will come. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit that and I'll show you why the people in the, the essence who were living in the caves were expecting the Messiah to come back. There's in particular one document called 1Q Melchizedek in which they make it very, very clear that the Messiah is about to come back based on the prophecies of Daniel and the times. Because when Daniel is living in Babylon and he's praying, he knows that the curse that God has imposed on his people for 70 years of captivity has come to an end and he's in supplication and making sacrifice for his people. Gabriel is sent to him and he's told... Daniel, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is your people will be saved. There will be restoration of the kingdom of Israel. It is going to happen. Alright, Gabriel, what's the bad news? The bad news 
is that it's going to take 40 weeks of years. I'm sorry, 70 weeks of years. What does it mean? 70 times 7 years for it to happen. This is how hard is the heart of your people and this is how long it will take for them to come back to their senses and recognize that they need salvation. What is that? 490 years, which brings us about 10 AD. Okay? Right? But the, this is when he starts his prophecy in the kingdom of Babylon. Alright, so you take 530 BC and you add 490 to it, what do you get? I'm sorry? 40 BC. 40 BC. So it, I will get you the proper date. It is 530, 530 is when he started in Babylon and his vision extended a little bit further. But right about that time is when they were expecting, basically, you know, close to the end of the first century, I mean, to the, to the first century BC, the coming of the Messiah. And Paul writes with that in mind. Okay? So there is a definite historical timeline across political situation that brings about the redemption of the people. Redemption is rooted in political events. Alright? Now, keep that timeline in mind as we proceed through the, the, the book of, of St. Luke because it is going to be very, very important. Alright, now, let's try and take a stab at the first chapter and see how far we can get. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Okay. A couple of comments. Zechariah is a Levite. Right. The priests of Levi were divided in divisions and his was the division of Abijah. Which interestingly enough is the eighth division. So, anagogically, when you look at number 8, and you understand how St. Paul makes use of the number 8, speaking of the 8th day, the day of the resurrection, you already see in this text a pointer that it is on the 8th day that salvation will occur. Okay? They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. This sentence, if you recall what I just read to you from the book of, Levitical, of Leviticus, where the Lord says, if you walk in all my ordinances and commandments, Luke has taken that sentence 
verbatim from Leviticus 26. Right? And any time you see a quote made like this in the book, it brings back the entire text. Alright? Familiarity with the Old Testament is key to understand the New. Any Hebrew, any Jew, any Israelite who really is familiar with the with Scripture will immediately recognize that sentence. Alright? And even before he, he says, you know, even if he didn't say we're both righteous, if he just said walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, you would say, here are two righteous people. Okay? So what do you understand out of this? These are, this is a couple who is covenantally faithful. They are faithful to the covenant of the Lord. And they are blameless before Him. Why is He saying that? Because if you do a little bit of study, you would see from a number of sources that the, Levit that the Levitical priesthood at the time of, right around the time when Jesus was born, was fundamentally corrupt. Yet, here is Luke showing us that God always preserves a remnant. Always does, always will. Alright? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now the barrenness of Elizabeth recalls the barrenness of a number of other holy women. Right? Sarah being the first come to mind. And then Rachel. So Sarah, the wife of uh, Abraham, was barren. Rachel, the wife of Isaac, was barren. Rebecca, the wife of Jacob, was barren. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was barren. Alright? What does this physical, material barrenness signify? It signifies the inability of the Old Covenant to bring about salvation. The Old Covenant was old and barren and could not save could not bring about salvation. Now why is the Old Covenant important here? If we stop and we look at their names, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is, has, comes from the root of the word Zakar, which means to remember, or remembers. And Yah is a short form of Yahweh, and it means God remembers. That's Zechariah. Elizabeth is in Hebrew Elishavat. And Shavat is covenant, and Eli is God. Okay? Shavat is covenant, and Eli is God. So their name signifies what? God remembers his covenant. Alright? The covenant is essential, is the key to properly understand scripture. Alright. Yes. What 
What was the reason that the old covenant could not bring about salvation? Are we going to get into it? We're in it. It's going to take us the length of the Gospel of Luke to really understand why. So, keep, keep that question. Because we're, Luke is going to get into it, and so we will be revisiting it um, on a regular basis, actually. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Every division were to serve before the Lord. The temple of Jerusalem had the Holy of Holies. Under the temple of Solomon, the Holy of Holies was this room, gold-plated, and containing the Ark of the Covenant, with the manna, the rod of Aaron, and the, um, the Ten Commandments. And above it were two cherubims, two angels, the statues of two angels, and the Shekinah, the presence of God, was on it. And that's where God dwelt among His people. A foreshadowing of the Blessed Sacrament. Under Herod, of course, the Holy of Holies was empty. The Ark was hidden, and the Shekinah had departed and never returned. We see that in the book of Ezekiel. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. And next to it was the altar of showbread. And on that altar were twelve loaves of bread with twelve cups of wine. Going all the way back to Melchizedek. And these twelve, it was called the table of showbread. And these twelve loaves of bread and twelve cups of wine represented what? I'm sorry? No, not the twelve tribes. The kingdom of Israel. The promise that God made that He will bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel with the twelve tribes. And so by the time that Zechariah enters that room, which happens to him once in his lifetime, it's a great honor to go before the temple of incense and offer incense. By the way, offering incense, that's not a Catholic invention. Alright? That's rooted in Hebrew tradition. And when that priest enters that room, you think he enters in his, in his, in his uh, uh, civilian clothes? There's a whole ceremonial of purification he has to go through. He has to put on special vestments. Very similar to the vestments that a Catholic priest today wears. In fact, you take a Catholic priest dressed in vestment for Mass, and you send him through time 2,000 years ago, and you get him to stand in the Temple of Jerusalem, guess what? He'll fit right in. Okay? Those are not inventions of the Dark Ages. Those harken back to established traditions. Okay? Pardon? No, no, it, it, Aaron. Yes, it goes back to the Levitical priest and how God established those vestments. Now, here he is inside offering incense. For what? The people are praying outside with him. It's a ritual that lasts for about half an hour where they're standing outside. They're not allowed to enter the temple, the holy. You need to understand that. You, you're familiar. To, you are, you've been brought up to enter the church. 
Okay? You, you need to understand that back then, men will stand in the court of men, women will stand in the court of women, but no one enters the temple other than the priest. And certainly no one will enter the Holy of Holies other than the high priest once a year, very briefly, to offer atonement for himself and the people. And there he says, very softly, the name of God. And it used to be the case that they would attach him with a rope, so that in case God smites him, they could pull his body out. That's how much they understood the holiness of God. And here we are, jumping up and down the altar, as if it's a playroom. We have a lot to relearn. Now, here he is, standing, offering incense, for what? That God's promise may come to pass. That the kingdom of Israel may be restored. And at the same time, he's offering a prayer that is very personal for him and his wife, that he may have a child. Here he is, and then Gabriel appears to him. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. Call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine, no strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Notice the sentence, he shall drink no wine, no strong drink. That's a Nazarite vow. He is consecrated to the Lord. Alright? Notice. Hold on to the question. Gabriel doesn't say, Alright, Zachariah, you're going to have a son, and you're going to wait 18 years for your son to grow up, and then you ask him if he wants to have a Nazarite vow and wants to follow the Lord, you let him make his own choice. doesn't say that. He says, that is what will happen to your son. He will be consecrated unto the Lord. Now, I would like to ask you a very simple question. What is baptism? Consecration unto the Lord. God doesn't ask the kids if you want to be. You're going to be. Why? Because of the covenantal promise. When you enter into covenant with God, it isn't an individual thing. It isn't about me. It's about the family. You enter in covenant, your entire family enters, whether they want it or not. You catch that? You sin against God, you hurt your family. That's why we go to confession before a priest. Because we're not only confessing before God, we're also confessing before our family for the hurt that we brought upon them. You understand that? Covenant is the key to interpret the Bible and understand our daily lives as Catholics. As Catholics. Now, the name is given, Yohanon. There's no such name in his family. It's a break from the Old Covenant. Alright? Now, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's quoting here from um, Malachi, and I'll refer you to the notation, Malachi 3, 1, 23, 24. Look at Malachi chapter 3. But also, 
since we have a Catholic Bible, I'd refer you to Sirach chapter 48. In Sirach chapter 48, the quotation from Malachi is presented, but Sirach adds one more verse. And to prepare for the restoration, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is not an exact quote, to prepare for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. You understand that? The kingdom of Israel. Now, notice the note of joy. The note of joy is in all the Gospel of Luke. Joy. The child will be consecrated and he will go in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. The problem we have today is not a new problem. The crisis of fatherhood for which we're going today is not a new crisis. How do you know when you have a wayward people? When the fathers are not focused on their children. When work, money, fame, ambition comes before men's duty towards their children. This is not a new problem. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Right? Rebellious teenagers are not the way God intended families to be. I meet so many parents who are completely resigned to the fact that their teenagers will be rebellious. And they think this is a normal state of affairs. Instead of stopping and questioning their spiritual life as a family. And seeing whether there may be a break in the covenant that brings about a curse in the form of rebellious, disobedient teenagers. We are so imbibed by the values of this world that we don't realize how far we strayed from a covenantal relationship with Christ. And I repeat it many times, you've heard me say it many times, I'll repeat it again. The first fruit of contraception are rebellious children. I hope you see it a little bit better why. Contraception is a mortal sin. It breaks the covenant with the Lord. In it will trigger the curses. One of which is the most important one, rebellious children. Disobedient. Hardness of heart. It's automatic. I mean, you can see it almost in every single family. Doesn't, I don't have to ask people if they're contracepting or not. I just have to see how their kids behave most of the time. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God intended for all the kids to be just those little saints standing like this and doing nothing. No, there is a normal, there is a normal, you know, a normal uh, misbehavior that comes from original sin rooted in all of us that you will see. Right? But what I'm talking about is this hardness of heart that brings about a complete rejection of the authority of the parents. Doing what I want, you have nothing to tell me, I'll do whatever I want. And there is no authority left for the parents. That's what I'm talking about. An extreme case which destroys the family. Now, 
And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Let this serve as a warning and a lesson for anyone who's praying that an angel or a heavenly being appears to him or her. Here we have a man that is blameless. God sends him Gabriel, the archangel. He delivers a message to him. What does he do? This blameless man. Huh. Alright. Show me the goods. You understand? Don't ask for something when you don't know what you're asking for. You may get it. And then you would regret getting it. Okay? But it also typifies the fact that the Old Covenant cannot bring about the sacramental grace that we all need to be able to believe and live according to the Covenant. Even in a blameless man. And we could only wish to be a fraction, to have a fraction of that righteousness that Zechariah had. Don't think I am putting him down. No, it's the opposite. You have a man that we should strive to imitate, and yet he doubts before an archangel. What does Gabriel says? I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. This muteness that he was stricken with, why did he struck him with muteness? Why not, you won't be able to walk. Or, you won't be able to eat broccoli. Or, your hair will stop to grow. Why not? Why, why strike him with muteness? Okay, but I mean, there's a bunch of other things that could happen to him, right, than being mute. But what is he? He's a priest. What is a priest supposed to do? Preach and teach the word of God. That physical muteness with which Zechariah was hit tells you about the spiritual muteness, dumbness if you will, that unfaithful priests will be hit with when they do not strive to live a holy life. So that their homilies, their words, will not bear fruit. If you do not live according to the covenant and strive to be faithful to God, don't expect to bear fruit. And you will be dumb before the word of God. You won't know how to interpret it. How to communicate it. So if you are dealing with a priest who is unfaithful, who is concerned with worldly things, do not pray to God that he just turns him into an orthodox priest so that you can get what you want. Don't be selfish. Pray that he may become holy. Pray for his holiness. Pray for the holiness of your priest. God placed the priest in your custody for you to pray for him. Pray that he may become 
holy. And, and to the degree that He is holy, He will sanctify you. You understand that? Don't complain about the priest. Never allow yourself to complain about a priest. It shows only your hardness of heart. And how little of God's mercy do you understand? Anytime you're tempted with complaining about the priest, turn it into a prayer. And if you absolutely must complain, complain to Jesus in the silence of your heart. Turn it into prayer that your priest may become holy. So that through him, God will touch and feed others. After these, these, these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she, she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Notice Elizabeth, she hid herself. That denotes a deep spiritual life. She hid herself because she isn't about, she's not a show-off. She's not about to show to others what God had been, done to herself. She keeps it to herself. Oftentimes, God will give you graces. Most of the time, God is not interested in you starting a spiritual marketing campaign about how wonderful God was for you in your life. He gives you graces because He is having an intimate heart-to-heart -heart with you, and He would like it to stay like that. And if he wants it to be known, it will be known. But keep it to yourself. Now, there is, there is much that I did not touch upon here. Um, but I would recommend that you read um, the book of the, in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, read the entire chapter to understand the Nazarite vow. Read the first book of Samuel, the first chapter. And let me see. Yes. Uh, Numbers chapter 3. Yes, chapter 3. I don't know why I'm insisting on chapter 3. Hold on a second. Did I say 6? Numbers, oh, that's because it's verse 3. Chapter 6 in Numbers. Read the whole chapter. Okay. And book of Sirach... Forty-eight, I believe, if I can find the book of Sirach. I'm just going to tell you where it is. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it used to be called also Ecclesiasticus. It's S-I-R-A-C-H, and it comes right after the Wisdom of Solomon, which is after the Song of Solomon, and right before Isaiah 6.31. So let me just, uh, here we go. Yeah, right before Isaiah. Don't listen to my pages because these are specific to this Bible. Alright, 44. Yes, chapter 48. Um, then the prophet Elijah arose like a fire and his word burned like a torch. He brought a famine upon them and by his zeal he made them few in number. By the word of the Lord he shut up the heavens and also three times brought down fire. When you read those words, don't read them as if you're dealing with, you know, Elijah aka Superman. This is not about Elijah. This is about God's covenant being executed. Elijah had brought a covenantal lawsuit against the people of Israel and brings about the execution according to what was written in the book of the Lord. When you don't follow my covenant, these things will happen to you. A little exercise would be for you to read this chapter and go back to, Le to Leviticus chapter 26 and correlate what Elijah does with what the Lord said he will do. And you will see they match. And then he says, verse 4, How glorious were, O Elijah, in your wondrous deeds, and who has the right to boast which you have? You who raised the corpse from death and from Hades by the word of the Most High. And then dropping down to verse 10, You who are ready at the appointed time, it is written, to calm the wrath of God before it breaks out in fury to turn the heart of the Father to the Son, which we just heard from Gabriel, quoting, turning the fathers towards their Son. And to restore the tribes of Jacob. Restoring the tribes of Jacob, meaning all twelve tribes, the kingdom of Israel. Right? So, read the whole chapter in uh, Sirach, and I'm giving this to you because it is a specific Catholic book which does not exist in Protestant Bibles. And it will help you to see that every single time anyone pondering the Word of God comes across those books, they were puzzled. Looking at their current situation, here's a little bit of Judah left with a corrupt priesthood, and the Romans everywhere. We have Galileans and Samaritans, a mixture of who knows, God knows what. And there is no trace left of the ten tribes. How is God going to do that? How is He going to be able to restore the, the twelve tribes of Israel? Okay. And as a uh, last note, just to show you how Luke is very keen on t showing us that God is about to do that. Well, if we fast forward a little bit, to chapter 2, verse 36, 
Anna's prophecy. Anna was a prophetess, and there were quite a few prophetesses in the history of Israel. It isn't a, a, a new phenomenon. And there was a prophetess, Anna, and Luke adds, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Beg your pardon? Exactly. Of the tribe of who? Asher? How did you find out that she was of the tribe of Asher? Why does he indicate the tribe of Asher? Anyone who understands what's going on picks up immediately. Whoa, tribe of Asher. Those guys were gone, decimated. No, she's of a tribe of Asher. She's not a Judahite. She's an Israelite prophesying about Jesus. What does she say? And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of Him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. What is the redemption of Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the capital of what? Kingdom of David. All those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's choke full through and through. The Gospel of Luke is full, full of references, subtle references to us subtle because we are not schooled in the school of Paul to the redemption of Israel that God is about to, that Jesus is about to bring, that Jesus is going to bring about. Right? And he will answer this question. How am I going to be able to bring the restoration of the kingdom of Israel? In the following way. You see, there is one little tidbit of information that most Israelites forgot in the grand scheme of things. Why did God institute the kingdom of Israel? For what purpose? What's the purpose of the kingdom of Israel? Exactly. Exactly. The whole world. Not just Israel. The Gentiles too. How did God signify that? In the temple of Jerusalem, as I told you earlier, there was the court of men, where only men stood, and the court of a woman, where only women stood, and there was what? The outer court. And what was that court for? the outer court the court of the Gentiles you understand where Gentiles would come to the temple and worship God why? because God all along intended the salvation of the world so what is Jesus going to do? he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel not by trying to go through the entire world and picking Israelites one by one, but by including the entire world. That's his generosity. That's his plan. And now you can start to appreciate how hard this is for the Jewish establishment around the temple. That's God's plan. That's what Luke is going to show us over and over. And in fact, if you look at Simeon's benediction, 
And we'll look also at John the Baptist's uh, prayer, but in, in Simeon's benediction, we'll read the following. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Verse 29, Luke chapter 2. According to thy word. What word? For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people, Judah, Israel. Israel. Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understands, has a glimpse of how this is going to come about. How will Jesus restore the kingdom of Israel, fulfilling all the prophecies, but also going all the way back to the promise that was made to Abraham, that through your seed, singular, The nations shall be blessed. Not just Israel. And oh, by the way, at Jesus' time, what would you find if you were to enter the temple? What would you find in the outer court? The merchants. With sheep and herds and pigeons. Why do you suppose the priests of the Temple of Jerusalem placed the merchants and their sheep and their herds in the outer court? But why in the outer court? But they could put them outside of the temple. Why in the outer court? They could do it outside of the temple. Why in the outer court? That's very nice of you, Alan. No. Let me ask you a question. If you're going to worship in the church, and you come here, and I look at you and I say, Oh, oh, you're, you're, huh, you're not Maronite. Okay, you can stand out there. And out there, I have chicken. What am I saying? Am I saying that I really want you to come here? That I'm thinking about the Temple of Jerusalem as a sign of salvation to, the, to you Gentiles? What am I thinking of you? You understand now why Jesus was so upset and angry? Why he told them you turned the house of God in the den of thieves? Because you're profiteering from that market. And by the way, the market belonged to Anna and Caiaphas, the two high priests. They had the monopoly of that market. You know, post-scriptum. Mm -hmm. But they put it right there so that their view of salvation may be fulfilled. This is for us. We fulfill the law. You Gentiles, if we talk to you we will be defiled. We're going to let you out of our temple? Sure. 
Please, go sit there. Now you understand his wrath and his anger. It isn't about, oh, well, you know, Jesus is, you know, a communist. He doesn't like uh, people selling and buying and money. Nothing to do with it. It's about the purpose for which they have done it. That he was so wrathful. So you have some readings for next week. Next week is going to be um, the Annunciation. We're going to talk about Our Lady. God help us. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through it in one hour. This is going to be torture. Alright? It, it should take us ten hours to just walk through the Annunciation itself. But we can try and do the Annunciation and the Visitation in one hour. Alright? So, I'll see you next Thursday, not next Wednesday. Please uh, remind those around you it's going to be next Thursday, not next Wednesday. I'm not here next Wednesday. And um, 7.30 next Thursday. And um, we're going to you know, have a prayer break and we'll, we'll take some questions. And those of you who need to leave, God be with you. So please stand for prayer. I am Gabriel who stand. That is correct. Yes. No. No, that's a grammatical question. Uh, I know it's right, uh, and I leave it to others to be able to explain why. But I think it is grammatically correct. Continuous future? Okay. Um, what I can tell you from the book of Revelation, there are seven archangels who continuously stand before the glory of God. We know three of them. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. But there are seven total who are, in essence, uh, who have the privilege to be able to stand before the Blessed Trinity on a continuous basis, and more so than other angels. All right? We don't fully understand this, but that's basically a sense, uh, you know, a great sense of glory that they have received. Um, that's basically what we know. Any other? You had a question, Johnny? I'm sorry? I, I read further and answered it myself. Okay, good. Yes. I don't recall exactly what the word in the Bible, but uh, I believe Jesus said once uh, he does discriminate. Uh, but I don't understand why. He said that he came for the Jews first, then for the Greek and the Persian. Um, so would, uh, I'll try to relate that with what the Jews uh, were, were making, doing in the temple as far as right. get out outside and so on. Jesus said, I have come for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. <laughs> right? And initially he sent his apostles in the first missionary to the kingdom of Israel. He didn't send them anywhere else. Right? But that's because he is fulfilling all the prophecies. The first being that the kingdom of Israel will be restored for the purpose of the conversion of the Gentiles. That's the order. That's what he's following. He's not discriminating because, oh, you're, well, you know, those Gentiles, well, you know, forget them. No. He is about to fulfill all the prophecies that were written. 
So first, the kingdom of Israel must be restored. And it was restored. When? Pentecost. Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came on the apostles, and the church was born, that was the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. What is the church? The kingdom of Israel. If you can see the, the importance of the covenant, you can understand that today, as members of the church, we live in the kingdom of Israel. Heaven. We live in heaven on earth, sacramentally, in the church. That's the purpose of the church. The church is not the people in the church. We are not the church. Much less that the people living in the kingdom of Israel were not the kingdom of Israel. Why? Because in both cases, the ancient kingdom of Israel and the new, everlasting, eternal kingdom of Israel are based on God's promise, not on our performance. You understand the difference? This kingdom will not pass away, not because we're wonderful saints, but because it rests upon the word of Christ. When he said, I will build my church. Okay, that word church, alright, comes from Kohen, which means priest, holy, consecrated unto the Lord. That's what he's building. And that will not pass away because Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not... What did he mean by that? Does, it, does he mean that his kingdom is otherworldly? Some sort of a foggy little thing floating up in the air? No. He means his kingdom is not rooted on any power in this world. You understand? The kingdom of Jesus is not rooted, is not built upon anything that this world has to offer. Hence, when this world will crumble, the kingdom will remain. Does this mean that this kingdom is not to engage the world? On the contrary. He, the kingdom is to engage the world. The kingdom is to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Not make disciples from all nations. You understand the difference? Make disciples of all nations. All the nations are to be Christianized. All the nations are to become Christian. That is the mandate. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Somehow, we kind of understand it the other way around. I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of the church will resist against the attack of Hades. That's how we understand it. But that's not what he's saying. He isn't saying that the gates of the church will sustain and will push back the attacks of hell. He's saying the gates of Hades 
shall not remain closed before the onslaught of my kingdom. You understand? And what is Hades? Hades is not Gehenna. It isn't hell. Hades is limbo. It's where all the souls are waiting. And what opens limbo? What opens, opens purgatory? It's the Latin word. Same thing. Hades, limbo, purgatory. Same word. What opens it? The church. You understand? You understand what I'm saying to you? That's the extent and power of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It isn't of this world. It is to make nations of... Make Disciples of all nations, and even Hades will be subject to it. That's why you can offer prayers on behalf of the souls who went before us, so that they may be freed from purgatory. And that's why you offer masses on their behalf. This is not something we invented. This is scripture. It is heaven on earth sacramentally. Is the king present among us? Do we live in his presence? Yes. He's present, substantially present. No less present than He's in heaven, right now, behind me. We are in heaven. When we enter the church, when we're celebrating Mass, we are in some place, as St. Paul says, in the clouds. He didn't mean that we're going to be, you know, beamed up to some limbo cumulus out there and meet Jesus sitting on some horse running around and then fishing the saved. The cloud is the Shekinah cloud, the Holy Spirit. And so we are taken up in the Holy Spirit, in the presence of the Lord, when we celebrate Mass. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a feast, it's a wedding to which we are invited. All these imageries tell us one thing. The prophecies have been fulfilled. The kingdom has been renewed. It is here, today, among us. We live in it. This is what Luke is saying in his gospel. And this is what Paul was telling the nations. You understand? Yes. What's uh, Okay. May I, why are you asking me this question? What's Parousia? <laughs> I'm sorry? I was reading, I could uh, deduct the news what it could be, but... Uh, well, where, where were you reading it? In the introduction of the Gospel of Luke, explaining uh, the whole uh, of his... Uh, parousia. Uh, okay. That he wants to explain to the people that the parousia is not imminent, it's unexpected, and it's uh, a... Oh. ...on the day-to-day... Uh, yes. Which, 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 which Bible do you have? Okay. Yes. All right. I'll, I'll touch upon that very briefly. This is common among modern exegesis to say that Paul, Peter, that Luke. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this subject. So if you don't understand everything you want to say right now, that's okay. We're going to revisit. Luke gives us his version of the little mini apocalypse. You know, Matthew has a mini apocalypse, and so does Mark, and Luke has his own. But Luke takes the mini apocalypse and splits it into two. He puts one in chapter 23, I believe, of his gospel, and another one way up there in chapter 9 or 10. And there he focuses mostly on Jerusalem. And he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 
Modern exegesis says, well, you know, Jesus could not have gotten it that right. He could not have been that precise, seeing armies surrounded Jerusalem. Therefore, Luke was writing after the destruction of Jerusalem, when there's this crisis about, well, he said he was going to come, he didn't come, where is he? And he's addressing that issue by talking about his coming. And that's the background, backdrop behind this whole issue. The problem is the following, Jesus said, Amen, amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death before the coming of the Son of Man. Well, where is he? He said, Amen, amen, I say to you, there are some standing here that shall not taste death before the coming of the Son of Man. He said it in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter said it also, we're living in the end times. Paul said the same thing. Where is he? It's been 2,000 years. His parousia coming didn't show up. So Luke is writing to explain to everybody, well, you know what? Don't think you understand. It, it isn't about him coming imminently. He's, in essence, dealing with that crisis. It's a very common position among a number of scholars. The problem with it is that they miss the sacramental nature of the kingdom. Did Jesus come back before they taste death? Yes. No, 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 no. He's coming back after his resurrection. His resurrection is not his coming back. His resurrection prepares for his leaving. In his ascension, he went to heaven. Well, okay, he's gone. He's supposed to come back. Well, where is he? Problem is that if you were to wait for him materially, as in him physically present, you're going to miss the boat completely. That's not what he was talking about. Why? Because you need to understand it in the entire context of what? The restoration of the kingdom of Israel and his mandate. You will make disciples of all nations. But did he come back? Did Jesus come back? Yes. When? Before the Eucharist. Before Pentecost. True. Sacramentally he's present. But when he said that, right, he had something very specific in mind. And we're going to see it. The destruction of Jerusalem. Did he come back? Oh yes. Under what form? Titus, the Roman general. That's how he came back. Remember when I told you a little bit earlier that theology is expressed in politics? Political events express the will of God, but we've forgotten it. We don't know how to read our times anymore. It was not the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem. God gave Jerusalem into their hands. And there are several attestations by um, Josephus and also Roman writers about many strange phenomena occurring in Jerusalem during the siege. Chariots of fire flying over the city. A large cross appearing over Jerusalem. Many had seen. Josephus attests to it. Titus, in fact, says, I had no intention to inflict so much damage on that city. 
if God gave it into my hands. Here's a pagan recognizing this fact that we can't see today because we are so scientifically minded. But we, de- we don't read how God comes into our lives. Did He come back? You bet. On the clouds? Yes. In the form of a judgment. Just as He did it before. So if you understand the covenant, you'd expect Him to come back. If you understand the covenant, you expect that the curses of the covenant will be triggered. And that's what happened. 1.2 million, 600 to 1.2 million Jews died in Jerusalem in, during that siege. Not one Christian perished. They all escaped to the, they all ran to the town of Pella up in Galilee. Why? Because they read the signs of the time, according to what Jesus told them. We have stopped doing that. We go to church, and here's church bucketed in our mind, and then there is politics, and the two don't connect. Historical events, as they're you know, unfolding in our lives today, have no connection to what happens at Mass. And we don't understand that the war is waged here, in church, in Mass. And when we had the book of the Apocalypse, I'll show you that. The purpose of the book of the Apocalypse is basically, John, the beloved apostle, is left on the island of, uh, is, is banned to the island of um, Patmos, and while he can't celebrate the liturgy with his people, so Jesus show up and say, hey John, come up here in heaven, let me show you how we celebrate the liturgy, how mass is celebrated in heaven. That's the purpose of the book of the Apocalypse. It's about how liturgical celebration governs the world. Because this is how the kingdom of Israel governs the world. Through the liturgy. Through mass. And it's, it's I mean, the, 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 the spirit of ignorance of this century is so pervasive. The darkness is so thick that even devout... Catholics don't understand what happens during Mass. And they complain, well, you know, are we going just to have the priest serving the Eucharist? We can't have somebody else to help him. I mean, we have no idea. We have no idea. Mass finished. Mass is finished and we turn the church into a social gathering. Start talking. We just can't wait. That's what I'm trying to tell you. If you want to measure your... (laughs) If you want to measure your Catholic life, if you want to measure your Catholic life, if if you're asking yourself, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing? God, how am I doing? Am I living a, a holy life or not? Look at how you live the Mass. If your life in the Mass is tepid, if you're in Mass, well, because you have to be in Mass, but you'd rather be somewhere else. If to you Mass is just you know, one of those things you have to do, work needs to be done, and serious work needs to be done. Mass is where everything happens. Because in doing the liturgy, 
the covenant, the covenantal graces of God are dispensed to his people. During the liturgy, we come together and we petition the King of Kings present among us so that he hears our prayers. We are in his court. We are in his presence. He wants presence, parousia. He wants to feed us. Well, if he wants to feed us, don't you think he's going to listen to our prayers? If he gave that great commission, make disciples of all nations. And we're here praying that all Muslim nations become Christian. Don't you think he's going to hear us? But you know what? We don't believe it. We don't believe that Muslim nations should become Christian. According, according to uh, the studies made by a priest, uh, the, uh, the Muslims are originally uh, from Nazareth, the, the followers of, of Jesus. Well, maybe, that may be the case, but I'm, what I'm trying to point out today is that today in the world as it exists, somehow we don't think that we can pray for something that big. You know, the conversion of Russia, I mean the conversion of China, or the conversion of Muslims. We, we don't touch that subject because it's too big. And how, okay, we're in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Lord of History, everything belongs to him. He has authority over everything, dominion, power has been given to him and no, no one else. And we don't think he can do that. And we don't ask so, what is our liturgical celebration like? That's where we need to focus most of our spiritual life. Your spiritual life should be derived from Mass. Mostly from the liturgy, first and foremost, the liturgy. I mean, there's no way to insist more because it is how you live the covenant. It starts here. And then you carry it through your life with everything else. Any other questions? Most of the world will end if they convert. Yes, of course. Not they, us, everybody. Yes? How did they know the prophetess was from the tribe of Asher? How did Luke know that? Yeah. Good question. Um, you have two answers. One, quite a few scholars today will tell you this is uh, imitative historiography. Meaning that she may not have really existed, but he kind of made it up because he wanted to bring his point across. Or, he inquired about it, and he just simply asked the question. Did they know which tribe they were from, like genealogy? Yes, genealogy was very big. So each of those dispersed tribes, they would know which family that they were yes, from. Yes, exactly. That explains also how Matthew, you understand why now Matthew starts? The book of genealogy of Jesus, the son of, um, the son of, what does he start with? son of whom? The son of David, the son of Abraham. The two covenants. You go, what? The son of David? But, but the last son of David that we know of was shipped to Babylon. They plucked his eyes out and he died there. And no known son of his was left. Matthew shows you that in fact, the lineage of David, the royal lineage of David continued... To Joseph. 
incidentally, what does this make? What, what is then Joseph? King of what? King of Israel. You understand? That's who Joseph is. It's a, you go through the lineage, you see, David, his son is Solomon, king. And then you go through a, you know, a kingly line, and it continues, and suddenly Matthew breaks off, and he gives us a whole lineage which has no trace of, there's no trace of in the Old Testament. What does he get that from? They knew. But they kept it secret. Why? Because Herod and the Romans and the Greek and everybody else, and they found out that they had a king among them, what do you think would have done? But yes, it was known to some. And they kept that knowledge. Yes? So the apostles were they from the tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah, or only the tribes of Judah, the apostles? Actually, uh, they would be mostly from the tribe of Israel, because they were Galileans. See, they were Galileans, which means that they were living up north. And, and Galileans were a sort of a weird group, because they were essentially Israelites who were faithful to the Temple of Jerusalem. So to the Judaites, the Jews, they were kind of a second class believers. In essence, they were saying to the Galileans, yeah, we welcome your tithe, we welcome your, your faithfulness to the Temple, we like that, but don't ever think that we, you are our equal. Because you do not keep the laws of purity the same way we do. You are not as righteous as we are. But Galileans and Samaritans, by the way, those terms, Galileans and Samaritans, were the ones that the Jews used. Samaritans never called themselves Samaritans. They called themselves Israelites. Okay? But it's used by, it's a derogatory term used by the Jews that would mean sort of, you know, you know, half-breed. Mixed. You know, mixed, yeah. It's a derogatory term. And we're going to come to that and understand the role of Samaria and why Jesus decides to go through Samaria as he journeys to Jerusalem. And what, what does that mean? What does that represent? And the parable of the good Judaite. No, Samaritan. He doesn't do it just because, oh, it, it, Samaritan sounds better than Judaite. There's a deep reason for that. Yes? Uh, yes? Like when they separate, they, uh, the Israels are from Israel. Yes. Then the Israel and the Jew, the, the Jewish are under the law of Moses. Right? Yes. The Hebrew are. Yes, are not Christ. all. Well, the Hebrews, all right, are descendants of Eber, right? Right. Eber is a descendant of whom? Noah. So. Gentiles and Israelites are under the law of Noah. Okay? But the law of Moses was given only to Israel. Only to Israel. And the, Levitical, and, the, and the law of the Levites were given only to the Levites, to the priests. For instance, Deuteronomy is the law given to the lay people. This is how you're going to live. Leviticus is the law given to the priests. It was stringent. So, Moses permitted lay folks to divorce their wives but he didn't permit Levites to divorce okay, it was only restrict I'm sorry, Moses I need to, to, to check this out I don't know if it was permitting 
the divorce of a wife or having more than one wife or something to that extent. It was more lenient toward the lay than it was to the priest. The priests were, 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 were under a stringent obligation. Right? But yes, the Gentiles were not under this law. Yes, Alan. Oh, for a number of reasons. I mean, think about it. If you want to take over a land and you don't want trouble, what do you do? You take the people who live there and put them somewhere where they, don't, they have no roots, therefore they can't get themselves organized, and you take somebody else and bring them over there. And in the case of the Assyrians, they took a step forward and they forced people to intermarry. Not only did they deport, but they forced people to intermarry. So they mix the blood, and hence you don't have any more allegiance, you don't know where you're coming from. And so you represent a lesser threat. That's why. Any other question? Alright. So when Jesus was born, he was the Son of God. Yes. No more. I mean, uh, he was not related to any, anybody else. Oh no, he was. Of course he was. He was the son of David. He's an, he is an Israelite. He is a Jew. This is who Jesus is. As a person, Jesus is one person. There are not two Jesuses. There's one Jesus. We're two nature. A divine and a human. But Jesus is the son of David as much as he is the son of God through Mary you mean right and through Joseph by adoption by adoption okay. yeah okay. absolutely Thank you. you're welcome